This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour, the week in review. Welcome to Trumpet Hour, and welcome back to you if you joined us for the Wednesday program this week for the discussion with Mihailo Zekic on Israel's military relations with Germany and the discussion with Andrew Miller on what we are learning about the heavens, about in the beginning, and about the James Webb Space Telescope. I'm Philip Nice, and both Mihailo and Andrew are with us once again today, September 8th, for the Week in Review edition of Trumpet Hour. Happy Friday to you, gentlemen. Hello. They are joined by two of our other main Philadelphia Trumpet authors, Richard Palmer and Jeremiah Jacques. Hello to you gentlemen as well. Hello there. We are going to start and end today's episode by focusing on one of the two or three most powerful nations in the world right now, and that is China. You've been watching China and Asia for several years now looking for certain trends to appear. So first of all, uh, what have you been watching in Asia generally this week? Uh, Well, Russia has unrolled a new educational initiative that introduces students to military skills at young ages. So one uh, element of this new program includes teaching them how to handle Kalashnikovs, the big uh, AK-47s, also how to use hand grenades. And then kind of on the other side of the battlefield equation, there's a unit about how to conduct battlefield first aid. So it's um, some pretty revealing subject matter, you know, that the Russians are teaching their young. And it's just one more sign that we should expect more and bigger wars on the horizon. Russia, of course, probably one of those uh, other top three most powerful nations in the world. But your main story, as well as the panel discussion that we are going to finish this episode with, concerns the rising superpower of China. That's right. Yeah, the big story is a new report saying that Chinese researchers have made major strides in developing EMP weapons. Those are electromagnetic pulse weapons. This report was published on Wednesday by military analysts Ryan Clark, LJ Eads, and Shishu Zhang Lin. Um, and EMPs are they're designed to just direct a massive explosion of energy over a targeted area. It's almost like lightning, except the energy would be directed in specific currents toward you know, a, a designated area. And these weapons actually don't physically harm people or other living things. Instead, they do their damage through induction effects. So essentially, every electrical circuit in the targeted area can become kind of like an antenna for a signal that's so powerful that the induced voltage exceeds the circuit's design limits. And of course, that fries the electronics. So when you think about just how dependent modern America is on electronics, I I think you can see that it would be virtually impossible to overstate the dangers of these kinds of weapons being used against us. This new report talks about the vulnerability of U.S. critical infrastructure, including the electric grid. So, you know, lights off for everyone in the affected radius and also cars and phones. You know, all of that would be vulnerable to EMPs. And then most worrying is America's military equipment, all the warplanes, the comm systems, the targeting and navigation system. All of that depends on circuits and electronics that are vulnerable to these kinds of EMP attacks. So that could result in just catastrophic losses for the military. Um, There is a great deal about EMPs that remains unknown. And some of the threat remains 
kind of theoretical, but the Chinese are apparently making notable gains in their development of this type of weapon. The The report talks about a high-powered magnetic pulse compressor that they've already built. It also reveals China's development of a mobile suitcase-sized directed energy weapon. So, you know, a miniaturized version of this could easily be carried by a person or placed on one of China's spy balloons. We saw a few months ago how easily those balloons can get near sensitive American military sites. And it shows that this could be a very serious threat. I'll just read one, um, one part of this report. It says, China's rapid advancements in the field of EMP weaponry have emerged as a significant concern for the strategic landscape of global security, particularly concerning the vulnerabilities of U.S. military and civilian operations. So it's, uh, you know, it's something that could pretty much instantly cripple huge population centers if these work the way our enemies are hoping. And that's uh, just a very worrisome development. We live in the the age of nuclear weapons, and you've talked about and written about uh, China massively expanding its nuclear weapons program. Uh, but you also see these major actors, these major nation states, developing other ways of attacking that might uh, not risk a nuclear exchange. Or, you know, for example, if you could cause an electromagnetic uh, pulse strike in a major American city, but not leave no trace as to who caused it. Uh, it would be pretty hard for the United States to justify, you know, sent, you know, bombing a uh, Chinese city with nuclear weapons in return. So you're seeing this. Uh, I mean, nuclear weapons remain the the main threat, obviously. Um, but uh, you've seen China developing in these uh, different ways, these different types of weapons. Um, and obviously, it also has biological programs that uh, could be or are being weaponized where we see China expanding in other ways as well as we'll talk about. But uh, with these weapons, the listener could benefit from reading uh, on this topic. Yeah, there's definitely some uh, some trumpet literature that gets into some of the causes of this and, and some of the, uh, the real implications as well. And Trumpet editor-in-chief has really been warning about these kinds of threats for almost 30 years now, and he's framed it around the U.S. military's dependence on technology, just uh, far too much dependence on sensitive technologies. Back in 1995, he called this dependence the Achilles heel of the American military, and he discussed a very sobering end-time prophecy that could be fulfilled by a cyber attack or maybe an electromagnetic pulse kind of a weapon. This prophecy is in Ezekiel 7:14. It says, "They have blown the trumpet even to make all ready, but none goes to battle." So, you know, this verse is about uh, the trumpet of war being blown for the modern nations descended from ancient Israel. That's mainly America and Britain. And the scenarios described here um it, you know, it's like something happens that causes everyone to expect the military to mobilize, but nobody goes to battle. So it's just a chilling scene that's painted. And Mr. Fleury has said that this could be because of some sort of cyber attack or something along those lines. So an electromagnetic pulse attack as well. You could see how that could just cripple all those technologies that the military depends on. And it could cause that same kind of failure to mobilize. So it's a just a very chilling scenario. And if anyone would like to better understand the prophecies that are that are relevant to this, they could read his article, it's called America's Achilles heel and Germany. And then we also have an article by our own Andrew Miller here, 
It's called America's Achilles Heel Electromagnetic Pulse Weapons. That's America's Achilles Heel and Germany, and also America's Achilles Heel Electromagnetic Pulse Weapons. Of course, that uh, America's Achilles Heel, referring back to uh, what Mr. Gerald Flurry quoted back, I think you said in 1995. So that's something that the Philadelphia Trumpet has been looking for for almost 30 years now, and there is clear progress being made by American adversaries toward that chilling scene that you mentioned. So thank you, Jeremiah Jacques, for that report on Asia and China. And we look forward to getting a little bit more about China uh, from you in the in the final segment, the panel discussion. Now let's move on to the Europe region. Richard Palmer, can you give us an update on Europe? There's been a bit of a spat over tanks between France and Germany. The two of them were meant to be working together on a new battle tank. Germany's decided that they're going to go off and work with Italy and I think Sweden and a bunch of others. Instead, they haven't said that they've canceled the French pact, um, but it's starting to look like the kind of usual European mess when it comes to joint weapons developments that take ages and and go nowhere. Uh, I think that's a a bit of a wake-up call to Europe that they still need to get their act together on this if they want to compete, and we'll probably talk about that a little after we've covered the main story. Uh, There's a lot of kind of migrant and Islam-related stories this week the UK on Sunday, we had our record uh, biggest day of migrants arriving in small boats. 800 arrived in a single day. And there's been new stats from Europe showing a record number of um, migrants, or the highest number since the migrant crisis in 2016, where half a million migrants claimed asylum in the EU during the first half of the year. Emmanuel Macron, the president, and he's he's wanting to make sure he looks like he's at least dealing with some of the problems of Islam. What he's done is change the rules so that the abaya, a kind of loose-fitting dress typically worn by Muslims, is banned from French schools. They're being sent home. I just thought it was interesting to see that happening at around the same time that New York is allowing mosques to broadcast prayers over loudspeakers. I mean, it's two very different directions, and it shows what we've been saying you know, since 9-11 and even before. You know, watch for Europe to be the ones that really end up confronting uh, Islam rather than the United States. Uh, and then we've had a few interesting pe- uh, bits of news from the UK just down the road from us. Birmingham has gone bankrupt, the UK's second largest city. They've been run by a left-wing government, and they have, of course, now run out of other people's money, as typically happens. And the UK part is uh, came you know, completed some of the final parts of passing a new law this week that will allow ministers to send people to prison for failing to uh, make environmental changes to their houses. Uh, they haven't announced what they will be. And in fact, they've said, oh, no, we've got no plans to create any laws that would send people to prison. They've just asked to be given the authority to do that, I guess, just for fun. Uh, but potentially now, you know, you you refuse to turn your boiler into an environmentally friendly but useless heat pump, uh, and you could p- potentially be jailed, uh, according to the power that the uh, that ministers have now been given. I think a, a powerful example of this kind of environmental authoritarianism that we're seeing around the world. You talk, I, the, the two that stood out to me in that rundown is the uh, France banning another item of Islamic religious dress. They'd already banned uh, one of the head types of headscarves and now the, uh, the loose-fitting garment, as you mentioned, at the same exact time that Ground Zero uh, for the September 11th terrorist attacks, which the anniversary of which is coming up in three days, 
um, I not every year, but many years I will uh, go and look at those videos again. Um, I was uh, just entering college when 9-11 happened and we were in one of our, I think it was like our first week of classes and um, we saw it live and we saw the people falling. And to imagine that now we have uh, many um, immigrants overflowing that city as has been in the news, uh, but that people in that city walking around are going to be hearing those Islamic calls to prayer just show how, uh, how weak this country is and how, uh, what Mr. Uh, Trump editor and chief Gerald Flurry said at that time is really, uh, the case that this country is, is being destroyed, uh, from within. Uh, you mentioned that main story that you want to bring us, uh, from, from the region of Europe. What is that main story? Yeah, there's been quite a lot of news coming out of Ukraine this week, I think is worth talking about. Uh, this is, I guess, going back a little bit to last week, but it looks like Ukraine has broken through Russia's defensive lines in southern Ukraine. It's been quite costly to do that. Uh, Die Welt had some estimates out this last week estimating that this counteroffensive has caused around 50,000 Russian casualties and 50,000 Ukrainian casualties. Uh, if that's accurate, that's both uh, you know a lot of dead people. Uh, I guess casualties would also include wounded and those unable to fight, but still, that, that those are high numbers. But also uh, quite creditable to Ukraine, if that is true. You would generally expect those kind of on the offensive to suffer more losses than those defending. Uh, but you can see, I think you look at some of the other actions from Ukraine this week, and they are starting to see the, tr the strain in terms of manpower. And I think some of the other developments from this week point to a possible change in strategy from Ukraine. So uh, you've had the defense minister was uh, dismissed this last week. He said, I believe the ministry or the, the president, uh, Vladimir Zelensky, when he dismissed him, said, I believe the ministry needs new approaches and other formats of interaction, both with the military and society as a whole. There's been talk of for quite a while now of corruption allegations against the defense minister. They may well be true. Uh, but I, I do think a part of that is a strategic shift as well, and maybe to do with you know this interaction between military and society as a whole. In recent weeks, the government has been tightening laws around who can avoid serving in the military. They've tightened medical e exemptions. They've submitted a bill that would end an exemption for conscription for those who are over 30 and pursuing university degrees. There was even a, an interesting meeting in Poland between American authorities and Ukrainian authorities. Geopolitical Futures' as George Friedman had an interesting article about that, kind of speculating that America is potentially pushing for a shift in strategy there. But certainly a lot of it that makes it look like Russia is trying to get more men, expanding towards more like a full mobilization as they try and exploit this this breakthrough meanwhile you've got russia continuing to you know they're not they're certainly not down and out they actually came just yards away from hitting nato territory on sunday they hit some danube port infrastructure uh, that was you know, romania's just on the other bank of the danube what they're doing here is this is all about food supplies uh, because they used to have a deal that allowed ukraine to export food via the black sea 
They have pulled out of that and are attacking Ukrainian grain that goes out via the Black Sea. So Ukraine's only other option is to send it out via the Danube. So then they're sending in a drone attack now to attack the Danube. There's a there's an effort there to restrict Ukraine's economy, potentially even uh, pressure other sides to be more supportive of Russia by increasing global food pressures and, and global food prices and restricting food that's able to go. Certainly, it if you can't get food from Ukraine, well, Russia is a major wheat exporter, uh, and it does put the pressure on you if you're desperate for wheat to go and, and cut a deal with Russia so you can get access to it. And I think another development that may seem a bit unrelated, but really does show the pressure that is on Russia when it comes to Ukraine comes from Armenia in the Caucasus. Uh, just really interesting some of the shifts that have been going on there. The prime minister has said that his country's previous reliance on Russia for security has been a strategic mistake. Uh, Armenia has been very firmly in the Russian camp for, for quite a long time. Uh, in just a few days, starting on September the 11th, the U.S. military will be having joint exercises in Armenia. So this seems like the beginning of a strategic shift where Armenia is changing course and saying, well, we're not going to be a Russian ally from now on. They're not saying, I guess, that they're going to become, say, a, an American ally, but they're certainly more open to look around of outside influence. And I think this shows why the real danger for Russia in Ukraine. You know, we talk quite a bit on this show when America suffers military reversals, what this does to America's allies and America's alliance system. And that we have seen in recent years, America's allies moving away from America or seeking alternative powers when America looks weak. And you look at Ukraine as a snapshot right now, and I think you see the same thing happening to Russia. That's not to say that Russia is going to lose this war or, or, or like anything like that. But I think if you just look at it right now, uh, Russia is looking weak, looking weak. A lot of people thought that this would be a cakewalk for them. It wasn't. And you're starting to see more and more Russian allies rethink their relationship with Russia. And so that really puts the pressure on because what's at stake for Russia and Ukraine isn't just Ukraine. It's their whole global alliance system. And if they fail here, you know, they risk having U.S. bases at places actually probably far more dangerous to them than than even Ukraine and uh, potentially having you know, losing grasp of the Caucasus. You've got some of the, the, the stands in Central Asia that could potentially peel off. Uh, and so the, the stakes are high for Russia here. That's right. Russia does have... Uh quite a strategic situation to keep in mind. And, uh, and like you said, the stakes are high and I just sit back and I think we are still grinding through a major land war in Europe. It's, it's amazing how we can get used to things, how we can be like, okay, I guess this is, this is the world I live in now, but, uh, there's a major land war in Europe. Russia, uh, is, is churning through human beings in Eastern Ukraine, uh, and it's a land war that is escalating, that is threatening to escalate, you know, possibly, uh, I'm not saying it will, but I mean, Russia has nuclear weapons. Uh, but this is the world you are living in. Whether you're living in America, like the majority of our listeners, or whether you live in Europe or elsewhere in the world, you are not living in the same world as you were 22 years ago before 9-11, for example, or 10 years ago, or even 18 months ago. Uh, this is, this is, the, things are getting very bad, very dangerous, very quickly here and here and elsewhere. Um, and I think, it, go ahead. 
what well, I think it does seem quite probable. You know, you look at the events of this week, and I think it does look quite likely that it's going to escalate. Ukraine's not preparing to back down. I saw a pretty good article that was comparing Russia's strategy to to the kind of uh, Kaiserschlacht or the the German Spring Offensive in 1918, where Germany kind of used the minimum that it needed to hold the line uh, on its front while building a big reserve of men that it could just throw into the battle all at once and asking, is this Russia's strategy that they, they're kind of preparing now to have a large mass of men that they can throw into the fight? And, and certainly it might be. Uh, you know, when we're talking about Russia's tactics and things like that, we're speculating to a certain extent, but you can, you can know the broad trends of what's going to happen here based on Bible prophecy. We have just a, a fantastic article from Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry from a few months ago called The Ukraine War Will Not Start World War Three." that really gives you a great overview of what Bible prophecy says will happen in this war. He hits on quite a few. I just want to focus on one in particular where he talks about uh, – a prophecy, a prophecy that we that we come back to again and again in uh, Ezekiel thirty-eight against an individual that that is referenced there as the Prince of Rosh, as it as it should read. Uh, there's a single individual, and he is prophesied to be a major figure in end time events. And uh, over the years, Mister Flores had quite a lot of very specific things to say about this Prince of Rosh. You know, it talks about him. Uh, it calls him the Prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, uh, ruling over this big area of multiple kind of peoples there with Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal being mentioned. Mr. Flurry's talked about how this really emphasizes his expansionist mindset, that this is referring to a Russian leader who's really going to work to gather in all parts of the Soviet Union. He said that even before Putin invaded Ukraine. You know, you know from that he's not going to just quietly let these Russian allies walk away from Russia. He's going to fight hard for them, whether that happens in the Ukraine war, whether that happens in some conflict that happens later. You know, we don't know. But that happens. And you you go on to read this this passage. He's a very stubborn, uh, resilient leader. He's somebody who never really gives up fighting. Uh, and so that's going to play out into his character. We're going to see somebody that is not afraid to resort to all kinds of cruelty or any destructive means if he thinks that that's going to benefit him in battle. He's not going to be held up by moral qualms. Uh, it talks about a whole lot of people being killed by this leader. So here's a way that Bible prophecy in its broad outlines enabled Mr. Flurry to forecast the Ukrainian war and to say, well, are we, you know, based on the character of this man that's described in the Bible, are we going to see this man invade Ukraine? It seems likely. You know, he said that uh, many, several years before the Ukrainian invasion. And it can give us the broad outlines of how this conflict is going to continue. He's not going to be defeated. He's not going to go to go anywhere. Uh, and it's going to lead up to this big clash. But I think one thing to to really draw attention to, and that also stands out from these couple of chapters that talk about the Prince of Rush, is there's also this phrase that's used again and again in this passage that talks about, well, this is all so that they may come to know me, God says. This is all so that mankind, and so that even you know, some of these cruelest nations and cruelest leaders 
can come to know God. And he's he's spelling this out in all of this detail so that we can know that he is in charge, so that as we see these events, we know that he's behind it all, that there is hope, uh, and that this is all about getting mankind to to get to know God. Uh, and so that's why I'd really encourage you to to read this article, The Ukrainian War Will Not Start World War Three. I mean, yes, it's going to help you not be surprised about news events in the coming year. It's going to help you with any intellectual curiosity or, or I mean, it's more than intellectual curiosity to understand what is happening in your world. But most importantly, by showing you that the Bible is describing the world in front of you, it's going to deepen your relationship with the Bible and help you get to know God. That was The Ukraine War Will Not Start World War III by Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry, uh, as well as you mentioned uh, the, that booklet, The Prophesied Prince of Russia, Prophesied Prince of Rosh. That is quite a claim to make. I just looked it up. It was late 2016 when uh, Mr. Flurry first uh, gave a Key of David program on the Prophesied Prince of Russia saying, this man, this man, Vladimir Putin, uh, is in Bible prophecy and and throughout the ups and downs, the, the attempted coups, the protests in the streets, the uh, hazards that a, a world leader or dictator uh, would have every day, um, he has remained consistent. He has grown in power. And uh, and that is guiding what we are looking for in the conflict in Ukraine. And and I appreciate that point to to say that there is hope and there's a purpose. There's a purpose beyond just you know knowing Bible prophecy, beyond just knowing the future or infotainment as it's been called, or being a news junkie or being able to say I knew this would happen. Uh, there's so much more to identifying Bible prophecy and understanding the purpose of it. Also the trumpet.com slash brief. If you're not already subscribed, whether it's the Islamic calls to prayer in New York city or the Ukraine war or what to expect or what to do about it. Uh, you can stay up to date with it, probably stay up to date the best with it, with the trumpet brief daily email. Mr. Palmer uh, manages that and he covered some of these exact topics just this week in the Trumpet Brief. So the trumpet.com slash brief. You are listening to Trumpet Hour on KPCG 101.3 and online at thetrumpet.com. We'll be right back. listening to Trumpet Hour, the week in review. Welcome back to Trumpet Hour. I'm Philip Nice, and we now advance to the region of the Middle East with Mihailo Zekic. Mihailo, you and I talked at length on Wednesday about the state of Israel, its major weapons platforms, and how it is developing this trust relationship that now goes back decades uh, with Germany, despite what happened about one lifetime ago, the Holocaust perpetrated by German National Socialists. You continue to watch the Middle East. So go ahead and give us the other developments you've seen there this week. Yes. So France announced that they're going to scale back their um, numbers of troops in Niger. We've talked about uh, the crisis going on in that West African country quite a bit. Um, France currently has about 1,500 troops there. Uh, 
that they're not taking away the whole kit and caboodle when the new government, the military government there evidently wants them all out, I think shows that France is determined to have a presence there at some point. Uh, we'll continue to see how that saga unfolds. Also, we found out that um, Iran and Europe have been at war since last year. Um, it's a little bit facetiously, but we found out uh, the EU announced that a Swedish diplomat, Johan Floderus, has been held in captivity in Iran since about oh, for over 500 days. Normally, when a country kidnaps another country's diplomat, that means a declaration of war. Yet, for over a year, this has been kept under wraps and looks like the EU is now trying to put some pressure somehow to get him released. The fact that Iran could do that and not expect an invasion or some sort of problem in that way, I think, shows how bold they are and how much they sense Europe's weakness. We know from Bible prophecy that's not going to stay that way, or at least Europe's weakness. And uh, going uh, ahead, uh, this is the weekend review program, but we'll go for the week coming on Tuesday, this coming Tuesday. Israel is set to have its here, or the Israeli Supreme Court is set to have its hearing for uh, Benjamin Netanyahu's uh, re- judicial reasonableness bill. We've talked a lot in this program before about all that and the showdown that's going to happen with that. Uh, I, I think it's pretty obvious what direction the court wants to take with with this bill, but technically nothing's happened yet. So stay tuned for next week. Yeah, that's something to watch. You see the war over law here in in the United States and. Uh... To, to recognize that there's something fairly similar happening, uh, the lawfare, if you will, in, in Israel. We will look forward to uh, seeing how that turned out and hopefully getting an update from you next week on that. But your main story, you told me before the show, actually also has to do with the state of Israel. Yes, and it also has to do with a country that is nowhere near the Middle East. It's probably the furthest geographical that you can get that I've brought up on my segment on this program. It's uh, Papua New Guinea, which for our listeners that won't know, it's an island country just north of Australia. It's um, known as being colloquially one of the last places on Earth explored by Europeans. It's also home to the birds of bird of paradise which if anybody is a natural history documentary buff like myself, they might know what that is. But we don't think of Papua New Guinea, this tiny uh, country, small population, small economy of being an important power player in the world. But they took an interesting decision on Tuesday when they opened up their embassy for Israel in Jerusalem. They announced uh, this last week, which I mentioned on last week's program, you think it wouldn't be too remarkable for countries to have embassies in other countries' capitals, but because of the Palestinian issue and, frankly, because a lot of countries just don't like Israel, most countries have their embassies in Tel Aviv rather than Jerusalem itself, uh, only the United States, Guatemala, Honduras, and Kosovo, which that last one isn't even recognized by a lot of countries in the world anyway. Uh, only those countries have embassies in Jerusalem. Papua Guinea now joins them. And you think... I mean, yes, it's nice that another country recognizes Jerusalem, but at this point, like I mentioned, a few other countries already have. It's not like Papua New Guinea making this move is going to shake the foundations of the world. Why am I bringing this up as the Middle East main story when all these other things around the world are happening? Well, for the inauguration of the embassy, the Papua New Guinean Prime Minister, James Marape, he was in Jerusalem and he gave a speech 
you have been the great custodian of the moral values that God passed for humanity. And in that acknowledgement to the fullest, we have decided consciously to walk the narrow path. Many nations choose not to open the embassies in Jerusalem, but we made the conscious choice. This has been the universal capital of the nation and people of Israel. For us to call ourselves Christian, paying respect to God will not be complete without recognizing that Jerusalem is the universal capital of the people and nation of Israel. That was an excerpt from his speech there. And th this is just what struck me so much. Whenever you hear people talking about Jerusalem or recognizing Jerusalem or dividing Jerusalem, it's always about demographics or or uh, finding a way for two people to share the city or or historical boundaries or that kind of thing. You don't see people bring up religion that much, and you certainly don't hear the kind of comments that the Papua New Guinean prime minister just brought up. And the reason I wanted to bring this up is, I mean, for longtime listeners of the show, we know uh, they know that the Trumpet's perspective is on what God has to say about world news, what God has to say about international relations, on people getting along with other people. Whether Mr. Marape realized it or not, he just brought up the solution. He just brought up the solution to all these problems we heard about Russia and Ukraine, about China and EMPs, about what we're, go we're going to talk about for the, the next segments. So many people are, especially when it comes to Jerusalem, people... Jerusalem is mentioned throughout the Bible as being the city that God has chosen, the city that God has a plan for, the people of Israel being the people that God has a plan for. And yet when they talk about Jerusalem today, when they talk about trying to solve this problem, they leave God out of it. And from 1948 to now, no one's been able to solve the problem of Jerusalem. I highly doubt this was all altruism on Papua New Guinea's part. Israel is a rich country, and they can probably expect a lot more Israeli investment at this point. And Papua New Guinea for itself is no model nation of Christian values. It's, uh, it's extremely corrupt, extremely dangerous. A New Zealander friend of mine once had to go visit there, and uh, it was so nerve-wracking, the experience. He flew back into Sydney, Australia, and as he left the plane, he kissed the ground, and he told me it, it takes a lot for a Kiwi to kiss Australian soil. <laughs> so, <laughs> but, but still, I, when I saw this story, the thing I was wondering is, what would the situation be if other countries took this approach? I couldn't imagine the United States or Australia or New Zealand or any other country in the West talking like this when it comes to Jerusalem. God has a lot of prophecies like in Isaiah 1, 2 to 4, which talks about people beating their swords into plowshares, people not learning war anymore. There's a statue out that outside of the United Nations to promote peace. But it's all tied with people going to Jerusalem to see what God has to say about war, what God has to say about peace on earth and goodwill towards men. And whether, again, whether the New Guinean people know about this, their prime minister just said the solution to all these problems. And it's, well, I mean, it's one thing for somebody to say something like this. It's one thing for somebody to uh, give words and then people go on with their business. But this way to peace, this way to peace with getting God involved, this 
way of actually bringing real peace. This is something God wants us looking into. This is something God wants us learning from and being able to apply it in our personal lives. And eventually God will be applying it through the whole world. There is a booklet our editor-in-chief wrote way back called The Way of Peace Restored Momentarily. That's The Way of Peace Restored Momentarily. And it talks about a more concrete example of this way of peace, of bringing God into the peace process, into the pro- peace process with Israel and with its Arab neighbors that God was, himself was involved in and that brought lasting peace. Uh, for those that are familiar with God's festival plan, we're coming soon up to the Feast of Tabernacles, when, uh, which is a prophecy of God bringing peace to the whole world. This book, it would be a good resource to read leading up to that, a small foreshadowing of the peace that will soon be over the whole world. So that's the way of peace restored momentarily if our listeners would like to learn more. Watch Jerusalem. We say that over and over. Uh, Watch that city of Jerusalem. A lot of people can overlook it, um, but it is an important city. And I see why that led you to, as you said, the other side of the world in Papua New Guinea and its relationship with uh, Jerusalem and this kind of glimpse of, of, if you will, the way to peace. Um, I mean, as you said, there is a plan. I mean, the Bible says that that there, there's a plan, as you said, that God has a plan for the people of Judah, the state of Israel. Uh, and God has a plan for the people of Israel, which includes uh, the state of Israel, the Jewish state, and the English-speaking world, and even beyond that, like we talked about on Wednesday. Um, but I substituted for speech class here at Herbert W. Armstrong College uh, yesterday, and we had a speech from a student from Papua New Guinea. And it just, as you're talking there, it just reminds me of the purpose for the state of Israel. The purpose for the nations of Israel is to lead and to help and to serve all the other nations. There are there are nations around the world. It's not a, uh, as uh, Mr. Armstrong pointed out, it's not a, a case of favoritism uh, that God is working with. Uh, these nations in particular, or this, or the city of Jerusalem in particular, uh, he calls it uh, for what it is. Um, it's been a, a, a very bloody city over the over the millennia, but he is using a particular city and a particular nation and a particular group of nations to serve and to help in the long term all the nations of the world, all the people of the world, uh, despite of the. Israelis, despite of the Americans. So that's a, that's a good reminder and a good perspective that you bring us there. And again, the importance of, if nothing else, watching Jerusalem and watching it closely. So now let's go to another region and another nation, another superpower that does have an embassy in Jerusalem. If it doesn't understand the importance of that, it does have, it is one of those nations that Milo's, I could just mentioned is having an embassy uh, in Jerusalem, that is the United States and the Anglo-America region generally. Andrew Miller, you keep an eye on Anglo-America. Can you give us a rundown of the latest news there? Yeah, a lot of data trends this week, actually, for how uh, the Anglo-American society is doing. Data from Syracuse University implies that America's border facilities are now at 96% occupancy, uh, basically full and cannot accept any more (laughs) illegal immigrants or other refugees. Data from the Guttmacher Institute suggests that legal abortions in the United States have actually increased since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. Uh, There's several states where abortion's now illegal, but they are actually, uh, people from those states are going to where it's legal uh, and having them at even greater rates than they were before. 
And data from the American Medical Society indicates, despite uh, protestations to the contrary, at least 700 American children per year undergo gender reassignment surgery. That's the uh, polite term for genital mutilation that's happening in this country. That's You say there's more than uh, 700, according to the American Medical Society. We could go on about any one of those uh, uh, topics, immigration or mutilation, uh, but you want to focus in on a, a, a broader and, and uh, perhaps ultimately more serious topic for, for uh, in terms of its impact on large numbers of people in the long term or even in the medium term. Yeah, this week, as most of our American listeners know, at least uh, started off with Labor Day, uh, an American um, memorial that's supposed to um, express our appreciation to the American working class, the the people who keep this nation running. Uh, so Joe Biden spent Labor Day up in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. They had a parade up there, which he uh, spoke at, uh, basically uh, trying to brag and tout his economic successes. He had one quote from his statement really stood out to me. It says, we're replacing trickle-down economics, what with everyone on Wall Street re is referring to these days as Bidenomics, and guess what? It's working. And I, I think the... <laughs> The thing, maybe I wasn't paying attention, the thing that shocked me most about that is that I've been hearing a lot about Bidenomics, but I, I thought this was like a conservative talking point to like pin the train wreck is. of the American economy <laughs> on Joe Biden. Right. And it is. But apparently the, the, the Bidenomics... It, it either didn't the, the term itself either didn't originate with the conservatives or or the Biden administration has embraced it because apparently Joe Biden himself and all his economic policy wonks uh, <laughs> are fully going after that like oh no this is Bidenomics it's like they they, they want to know that like uh, you go to a gas station like me you've probably seen the sticker you did this. Uh, <laughs> And uh, apparently, Joe Biden's not uh, not offended. He's uh, he's he's definitely came taking uh, responsibility that I did this and uh, trying to tout it up like it's a good thing. And uh, it's amazing he went through some employment statistics, which uh, but uh, and I guess the unemployment rate in America isn't horrible right now, but the um, the inflation rate sure is. They uh, they estimate there's a Creatively titled article that I liked at the uh, Washington Examiner titled Bidenomics Just Doesn't Make Sense, uh, sense spelled S-E-N-T-S. C-E-N-T-S uh, -E as in the yeah, money. C-E-N-T-S, yeah, yeah, like dollars and cents. Uh, my my great-grandma always told me it took cents to make dollars. It was very vague on what type of cent <laughs> she was talking about. Uh but yeah, you're just looking at the numbers. I mean, since Biden took the oath of office, pr overall prices are about 16% higher. Uh, after factoring in pay increases, they figure Bidenomics basically amounts to a $5,600 pay cut for the average American family. Uh, I, I wrote an in-brief on this actually this week. The housing prices are up 27% since Biden took the oath of office. And at the same time, interest rates on 30-year mortgages have like almost tripled from 28 to 7.2%. When you do the math and take those two factors independently, that means for a first-time home buyer, someone who doesn't already have equity in the market, uh, 
your your average mortgage payment if you were to buy this year as opposed to the last year of Donald Trump's administration is going to be about double, uh, which means a large portion of the uh, basically the entire lower middle class, unless they've saved up a huge down payment somehow, um, like home ownership's just not something that's in the cards right now, which has been a staple of the. Um, American dream. I even have a clip. I guess we don't have to play it, but this is actually from an earlier speech and Biden gave in Milwaukee where he says Biden Bidenomics is a way of restoring the American dream. Uh, and so I, I guess his American dream does not include home ownership because Bidenomics has, has priced a substantial population out of the market for that uh, and is really just enforcing a huge uh, segments of the population to reduce their standard of living. When people look back, if uh, on this, if if you were to look back on this time and and read it in a history book, like uh, like a one page history textbook on the you know the twenty twenties and the twenty tens, yeah, I think one of the main things you would read is there was a massive outflow of wealth from the lower and middle class. Uh, and, and a weakening of the average American. Uh, and you, you, it, it can be easy to get into the weeds of, of, uh, you know, prices of this and, and rates of that and so forth and, and to not see the bigger picture. But what you're bringing us is a detailed factual statistical report, uh, week after week in many cases of a massive outflow of wealth and therefore strength and therefore political power, uh, from the average American, it's part of an uh, an overall uh, agenda. So take us straight, if you if you would, just take us straight to uh, the the upshot of this and the literature that you'd like to highlight. Yeah, the the, uh, the prophecy I brought with me today is actually in Deuteronomy twenty eight. Uh, Deuteronomy twenty eight and Leviticus twenty six are referred to in the Bible as the blessings and cursings chapter. It's the blessings that come on a nation that obeys God and the curses that come on a nation that disobeys Him. And Deuteronomy 28, verses 43 through 44, um, he has two of the curses here. It says, The stranger that is within you shall get up above you very high, and you will come down very low. He will lend to you, and you will not lend to him. He will be the head, and you will be the tail. Um, and so this, this curse is one, talking about one of the stories I mentioned in my rattle off at the beginning uh, about the border facilities being at. 96% occupancy, that there, they'd be talking that there'd be strangers or aliens or immigrants that would be getting up very high in the midst of you, but also that you would lend to strangers and strangers would not lend to you. Now, if you uh, do the math, if, you, uh, if strangers lend to you and you don't lend to them, uh, you're in debt. Your outgo is more than your, your income. And, uh, and that's really at the root of Bidenomics. I mean, you're, you're talking about how to define Bidenomics, and Bidenomics is basically trillion-dollar deficits every year for infrastructure projects. And he says, oh, we're going to do all this infrastructure. We're going to create all these jobs. Um, and maybe you do create some jobs with those spending. I'd have to look into that more, more detailed. But I do know this for sure. It's that like when strangers lend to you and you don't lend to them, you run deficits. And when you run deficits, you're creating money that isn't real. Uh, you're printing money that isn't real. Uh, you're causing inflation. You're causing prices to go up 16%. You're causing the average family to take a $5,600 pay cut in terms of purchasing power. You're, you're pricing the middle class out of the market uh, and really forcing um, 
entire nation to reduce its standard of living. That's actually the article we put in the show notes uh, this week is prepare to reduce your standard of living, uh, which goes through some comments Mr. Herbert W. Armstrong made in the 1980s that were saying that like as you approach the last time, the American people are going to have to start living more like the rest of the world lives. Right. And that's kind of what I allude to as far as an intentional outflow, uh, a historical outflow of wealth from the middle class. And, and, uh, it's it's a classic mixing of truth with error. I was I was talking with my family last night. There's uh, there's always a truth mixed in. Um, you know there there is uh, wastefulness and and so forth in in how America handles its money and how much debt it goes into to to uh, hold up an artificial standard of living. Um, but the the more I get into this, the more I think about it. Like even if I had a chunk of money um, that uh, somehow you know what would you do with it? Like how would you how could you trust in it? Like it could be devalued significantly. It could be devalued completely. Um, and so when you kind of do the, go through that mental exercise, you realize that it's not about getting money or getting somebody in there to, to stop uh, your money from devaluing. Uh, but there are, there, it's about finding and employing the principles of living, the principles of finance that will actually work, that will actually um, make that uh, wealth uh, benefit you. And so we're talking about something a lot deeper than, uh, you know, a vote or something like that. So we could go on about that, but, uh, we're going to move on to our next segment. We're going to hit you with the panel discussion next. Stay tuned. You're listening to Trumpet Hour, the week in review. Welcome back to the Week in Review. Our final segment this hour returns us to the topic we heard earlier about. Jeremiah Jacques told us about China and its development of powerful and dangerous weapons, EMPs. Uh, we want to expand that discussion out about China. Uh, Jeremiah, give us the uh, who, what, when, and where on one of the more recent developments there in China that kind of shows how it's rising, how it's expanding. Sure, yeah, just a general trend, really. But the uh, the Chinese remain determined to expand the territory that they control in pretty much every direction. So even those who long defended the Chinese Communist Party are now being forced to acknowledge that the regime is just hell-bent on essentially dying the world red, you know, the, the same shade as the Chinese Communist Party's flag. I spoke some time back with a man from Xinjiang, China. He is a Uyghur Muslim from that area. And, uh, of course, the Uyghurs would like to be a free country, but China colonized their land decades ago, and it refuses to let them have autonomy. And China is instead determined to just fully subjugate these people. And this man that I spoke to, his name is Sali Hudayar. He made the point that um, as tragic as the nightmare is in his homeland of Xinjiang, the facts show that that's only one part of the story and that the Chinese Communist Party really wants to do what they've done in Xinjiang all over the world. Mr. Hudayar said, quote, they want the world to bow down to China. Their ultimate goal is essentially global domination. So, you know, it's, it's alarming to hear that, and it may even sound a bit hyperbolic, but the evidence really supports the claim. You know, the Chinese Communist Party has campaigns underway to build colonies throughout Asia and in Africa, even in Latin America. You know, we've we've especially emphasized its gains in Cuba on recent episodes. The CCP is using debt traps and buying off elites in various nations 
to just gain power all around the world. It's also establishing illegal police stations in numerous nations, including the U.S. and and European countries. Um, That just allows the Communist Party to enforce its will far outside of China's borders. So there is an undeniable trend underway. And we've even seen a new map in the last few days that the Chinese just published. This is an official map published by the Ministry of Natural Resources. And China says that it should be viewed as a legal document. And it's hard to think of how this map could have been more provocative to a greater number of China's neighbors. So nearly the entire South China Sea is marked as Chinese territory. Taiwan, of course, is marked as Chinese, as well as Xinjiang and Tibet and other areas that China has forcibly colonized. The uh, Senkaku Islands that Japan controls, those are marked as Chinese. The new map also marks a huge part of uh, China's disputed border with India as Chinese. It even claims a small chunk of Russia as Chinese territory. And that's, you know, China's ally. So in just about every direction, the Chinese are saying, this land is my land. And, uh, and, and it just, you know, it's only the latest indication of how determined the Chinese are to, in the words of Mr. Hudayar, make the world bow down to China. The, the thing that stood out to me was the, the police stations. It, you are a country that has police stations and other in other countries, why is that? Is it is it to uh, you know make sure everybody's crossing the street safely in New York City? Is it to make sure that uh, you know uh, people who are robbed uh, have somewhere to turn? No, that's not. I mean, we call them police stations, and and they are. But when you're talking about Chinese Communist Party police, you are not talking about your friendly neighborhood Andy Griffith. You are are your your elected sheriff. You are talking about basically agents of the state. Uh, who are there to to enforce uh, Chinese, uh, not Chinese, well, Chinese Communist Party will. Uh, and we heard of what those people are doing to people in uh, the Uyghurs and, and other people. Um, this is an evil force and, and it's spreading around the world. And this is part of a, a larger trend. The map, the police stations are part of a, a larger trend of Chinese expansionism. Yeah, that map story, even though it wasn't actually from this week, I actually found really interesting. I've even seen some news reports of like some Hollywood movies here in America that have had maps of the world in the back. If you like zoom in, you'll see like a nine dash line or something like that. That's not on accident. That is not on accident. Well, yeah, because there's China's got a billion people. That's a massive ticket market to sell movies to be able to do that. But it's also like psychological propaganda conditioning uh, Americans to accept that, which is a huge thing, because especially the South China Sea, I mean, you've got billions and billions of dollars of trade going through there, some of the most vital oil sea gates in the world. And in terms of naval power, we actually did an infographic a couple of years back about declining U.S. naval power, and you're now getting more and more uh, naval analysts saying that, well, America does still have the most powerful Navy in the world. And as far as we can tell from the scene, it's going to stay that way for a while, except basically the area inside that nine dash line. They said it's like, well, it's getting to the point where China's military is strong enough that America may not have naval supremacy in that 
particular sea. China may control that, which would then means that China controls the coastlines of Vietnam and some of these other nations that they're they're encroaching on. But but more significantly for for world peace, I mean, uh, given how much American trade goods come from China and how much oil comes from China, that gives them a huge lever to basically disrupt free seaborne trade, which is something you take for granted, but it's been very rare throughout human history. It's basically the British Empire in the 1900s and then the American Empire for the since World War II uh, have kept the seas mostly open for the past 200 years with a brief violent interlude between like 1910 and 1940. If that goes away, you'll see huge cost of living increases, not, not just in America, but in nations around the world as shipping becomes very dangerous. And this is a great power that uh, that has ambitious and evil plans for the people that subjugate. You know, we would say even the United States is, uh, you know, riddled with evil and, and corruption and injustice. But when you see what this totalitarian regime is doing to the people it already can control, you realize when China's steering the world toward war and toward Chinese domination, you see just what a fearsome uh, result that would produce. That is all the time we have for this Trumpet Hour. We always appreciate you uh, listening. Oh, if uh, Andrew mentioned the infographic in a recent print edition of the Philadelphia Trumpet, if you want to see those infographics and articles that are written largely by these four panelists, go to thetrumpet.com slash subscribe. And you can also get the booklet Russia and China in Prophecy at thetrumpet.com, Russia and China in Prophecy. Email us your thoughts on the program at letters at thetrumpet.com. We thank our panel once again. It's Richard Palmer, Jeremiah Jacques, Andrew Miller, and Mihailo Zekic. We thank Parker Campbell and Isaac Lorenz for engineering and production. And again, we thank you most of all for listening to The Week in Review, and we look forward to being back with you on Trumpet Hour.